Well, good morning. I always enjoy coming in on a bright, sunny day like today. Uh, and I'm almost always especially excited when I look at the table before us. Uh, today is a communion Sunday. It's one that happens here every other week, give or take, for most of the year. Um, Communion is a funny word. We use it in a number of ways, uh, but it has some sort of connotation of people together in relationship with one another, sharing. It literally means being united together, a group of people coming together in some kind of uh, unity. And we use it in all sorts of ways. What You all know I'm a great fan of Les Mis, the... Uh, the great musical, and there's this great line in the song, Empty Chairs, Empty Tables. From the table in the corner, they could see a world reborn, and they rose with voices singing, ringing, and I can hear them now. The very words that they have sung became their last communion on this lonely barricade at dawn. As these students banded together in hopes of a new future, hopes that were dashed Sorry, spoiler alert. Uh, uh, Their hopes were dashed, but their communion of their hopes and then their dying together is one of the ways we talk about communion. We talk about it in lots of other ways too. But it points to something that I think is true for us, that we long for connection, for meaningful relationship with others, with a richness and a depth. It's what we were made for. And even more than that, I think that our longing for human connection is driven by a deeper and more fundamental longing that we were made for communion with God, for relationship with Him. But we don't always know whether God really wants to have communion with us. And we don't always know the way to know who God is and how to connect with Him. And we wonder whether we can actually have a relationship with God. This brings us to our text this morning. Uh, If you are reading in the Pew Bibles, it's page 828. It's in the Gospel of Luke. We'll be looking at the beginning of chapter 22. We're in the middle of a series in the last part of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, the story of Jesus' life. Uh, We're looking at this last part as he is heading ultimately towards Uh, the end of his life and his resurrection. Um, In this passage, we see uh, Jesus has um, now reached the last week of his life. He has come to Jerusalem. He has faced increasing opposition. And uh, interestingly, at the cusp of 21 and 22, the narrative begins to change. What we've had mostly has been discussion and back and forth and teaching and starting in verse 20 er, in chapter 22 the pace of the action will pick up and Luke is going to give us more narrative story of this is what happened there's certainly some teaching and words that are very important involved uh, but it shifts from more v- words to actions in this next section in 22 through 24 and what actions they are it's exciting but in the passage we're looking at this morning It addresses some of the questions that I just asked. 
So let's look at it together. Let's read. We're going to start in verse 21, uh, or in chapter 21, verse 37, uh, just if you want to need to go back a few verses uh, just to get the context. It's about Jesus, and it says this. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. And then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. And they said to him, where would you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters. And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, Where is the guest room that I may eat of the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold... The hand of him who betrays me is, is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who was going to do this. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you uh, this morning for your word we are reminded that you have made yourself known to us uh, through the writing of this text. And uh, Lord, we are thankful that you have not left us to grasp after you or to imagine what you might be, but Lord, that you have come and shown us in this word and ultimately in uh, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray this morning that as we look at this, that you would work in us, that we might know you more clearly. And Lord, that in response to what we know of you, that our hearts would be turned to you to worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
communion with God. How do we find it? This passage, I believe, helps us answer that question. There are two major sections. The first half is leading up to, from verse 1 leading up to verse 13, and then uh, and that's the context of this first communion meal. And the second section is verses 14 through 23, and we see the content of the first communion meal. And from both the context and the content, we learn all that we need to know to answer some of those questions. So let's look at those in order. First, starting in verse 1, we realize the context of the communion meal demonstrates Jesus' commitment to relationship with us. Verses 1 and 2 set the stage. Actually, it goes back a few, few verses earlier. I wanted to read that because you see what Jesus was doing as he was coming in to Jerusalem during the day. He would be teaching and then he would go back outside of the formal walls of Jerusalem to Olivet where he would, uh, he would uh, basically camp for the night. Um, and so this was his pattern. He was coming in and going out and uh, the crowds were loving it and the, the officials were afraid of it. And the evil intentions of men drew near, as we see in verse 2. Driven by their fear of the crowds, it was the time of the unleavened bread. This was one of the three great festivals in the Jewish year. And it meant literally hundreds of thousands, perhaps even millions, depending on uh, the numbers. Some people guess different numbers. But um, many, many people from all over Israel came into Jerusalem to celebrate this meal. And the officials were afraid. They were afraid of what might happen. They were afraid of how they might respond to Jesus. They were afraid of losing their power uh, uh, and to threaten the Romans in a way that would, would cause them to lose their place. And so they have determined, and if you've been here for a while, you've seen this increasing ratcheting of opposition to Jesus And so when we get to verse 2, we realize they're not asking if they should do anything about Jesus anymore. They're asking simply how. How are we going to get to him that's not going to cause a big uproar? How are we going to get to him away from the crowd? And as the story goes on, we see that the forces arrayed against Jesus and God's plan for this continue because Satan himself enters into one of Jesus' confidants. Jesus, we see that Judas steps forward as one who is willing to betray the master. And there's this interplay of these spiritual forces at work, which to our modern ears seems kind of crazy, and yet the Bible regularly reaffirms that there's a spiritual world and spiritual forces, and some are from God and are doing good, and some are not. They are against God, and they are doing evil. Um, And so we see that this is true, and we see this confluence of these spiritual forces and also a man, Judas, who seemingly throughout the Scriptures... Though he was present with Jesus, he had not bought in and believed. We don't know why he was the one who betrayed. We don't know his motivation. The one thing we see is that he got paid for it. And we know that money was a big thing. He was the treasurer. 
Gospel of John suggests that he was also stealing from the treasury. So perhaps there was financial gain. But we don't know all the reasons why, and we could spend much too much time speculating. But what we do know is that as Luke sets this story, as he's telling us about Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the city is arrayed against him. And the pieces are moving for him to become the victim of the plots of evil men. And Jesus walks right into it. When you look at verse 7, look with me at it. It says, Then came the day of the unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And so Jesus sent his disciples in to Jerusalem. Remember, he was going out in the morning, then coming back. And Jesus said, I'm going into that city where I know people are plotting against me. Remember at the very end of this, verse 21, Jesus knows that he's going to be betrayed. He knows that this is the plan. And in verse 7, there's even this divine imperative, this divine passive, that the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus knew that as he was going in, that the sacrifice of the lamb wouldn't simply be a sheep, but it would be himself. And Jesus walks straight into a hostile environment and a trap. And he does it knowingly, and he does it willingly, and he does it uh, intentionally. And he has his plan, and we don't know whether this plan was another scene, just kind of, uh, if you remember when he uh, made the arrangements for the triumphal entry, when he entered in, there, there were all these sort of signs. It's not clear whether Jesus had planned this beforehand or whether it was God's divine provision. Certainly a man carrying a water jar in Jerusalem would have been un, an unusual task in that day, and therefore it would have stood out uh, to the disciples when they saw a man carrying a water jar. But for whatever, however we read it, either way, we see that Jesus meticulously plans and prepares for this meal in the presence of his enemies. He's not running away. He's walking in to this. And as we look just a few minutes, a few verses further, as, as we get to the end of that section, looking at first verses 14 and 15, Jesus not only is doing this intentionally, but it says, I have eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. This Passover meal. I have eagerly desired. And one of the things about Passover meals, it had to be eaten in Jerusalem. It was part of the instructions that were given as you read through the Old Testament. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But he had to go into the very place where people were waiting to arrest him and do away with him. And he did it eagerly so that he could be with his disciples and celebrate this very momentous meal. Before we get to the content of that, let's stop and pause for a minute and think, what do we learn? What do we learn so far from this passage in these verses? Two things strike me. First, in the middle of this great story, you see this thread of both human responsibility and divine sovereignty in the outworking of both good and evil in this. It is God's necessary plan 
that a Passover lamb had to be slain. You look down in verse 22, and it says, what's going to happen to the Son of Man is as it was predetermined by God is the, is the subtext of that. Nothing that's happening in this story is a surprise to God. And God is not sitting up in heaven wishing, oh man, come on, Peter, James, John, somebody get a clue. Somehow rescue Jesus from this. Uh, I wish I could save him, but I can't. God is not unable to do those things. He is not unaware of what was going to happen. And not only was God the Father in heaven not unaware of those things, but Jesus himself was not unaware. He knew exactly what he was doing. Some suggest even that the... um, the upper room and the way that he did the, the way that he made the arrangements kept Judas out of the loop so that they wouldn't know where they were going because it wasn't going to be by their timing that he was going to be surrendered. He was going to choose the time that he would make himself vulnerable to be arrested, which is what you see further on. So God's plan is clearly at work here. God's hand is clearly shaping these events. And Jesus' faithful submission to what he knows is God's plan, even though it will cause him great, cost him greatly to do it. And yet we also see that in the midst of this, people choose to respond. We see that the chief priests and the officers are seeking, they've set their heart on opposing God and God's anointed one. We see Judas, not a victim of some helpless overpowering by a spiritual force, but Judas willingly participating in this evil plot, willingly receiving money for it, willingly seeking for the time where he might hand over his master to the the officials. And we see both of these at play in this story. How does this help us to think about our own lives? Well, first, we recognize that there is a God in heaven who ordains our days and oversees all of our lives. He has numbered our days. He has set our paths before we know them. And he is working each day, every day. And in the midst of that, he calls us to be responsible. We are responsible for our choices. We are called again and again and again and again in Scripture to choose God, to believe in God, to trust God, to follow God, to obey God. And we must take responsibility for those things. There are times when we see the evil in the world. And we must take responsibility for how we respond to that. Sometimes that will mean standing up for justice and fighting for righteousness. Sometimes the problems will seem too large and too intractable. And we will recognize that we are not God sovereignly working in this world. We are one of his creatures. And so we do what is right and good before us. And we trust him for the big picture. We trust him for how he is working these things out. How do we do that? Well, we trust him because we see that his sovereign plan in this passage 
was that Jesus himself would go and suffer on the cross for our salvation. Jesus on the cross is the basis of our trust in his sovereignty. He is able to work out even the worst circumstances and worst injustices for good. We may not always see it, but we can trust it. So one commentator comments on this passage and the way that these things work out. God works his sovereign and saving plan not only in the current of faith, but also in the countercurrent of evil. Judas hands over Jesus to the Sanhedrin, yet God hands over Jesus for the salvation of the world. So that's one thing to reflect on as we see the Uh, see this passage. The second thing that we see um, is that we see that the divine work, the divine will at work in this passage is that God is determined to have fellowship with his people. This is what we see with Jesus. He is determining that he will walk into the fire to rescue us from the burning house. He will not abandon us for fear that it might cost him too much. He knows that it will cost him everything. And he has said, I am determined to have fellowship with my people. This was true for the disciples in Jerusalem this last week of Jesus' life. And it is true for his church. As the Apostle Paul writes, God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. God's will is that he would pursue us and call us to faith in him. This is the heart of the, God, of the God of the Bible, is that he is pursuing his people to call them back into fellowship, communion, relationship with him. So this is the context of the story. This is the context of this first communion meal. As we keep going then, we see the content of the communion meal as well. This is following in verse 16. Um, And it says, and we know this already, that this is happening during the Passover. And if you look, the Passover is all over. It's in verse 1. It's in verse uh, 7. It's in uh, verse uh, 11. It's in verse 13, and so on, as then he gets to the meal. The Passover is the context in which All of this is happening. And we need to stop for a minute and make sure we know what is the Passover, right? In this context, the Passover was a meal. It was a meal that the the Jewish people would gather together. They would eat particular foods, bitter herbs, unleavened bread, a lamb that was sacrificed, wine. They would drink four different cups. This meal would be to commemorate God's saving work as he delivered his people from Egypt. This is what it looked like. One commentator summarized the meal like this. The normal procedure at the Passover meal was to have an opening prayer, followed by the first of four cups of wine and a dish of herbs and sauce. 
The bitter herbs remind them of the suffering that they had in Egypt. Then the story of the institution of the Passover was recited. Psalm 113 was sung, and the second cup of wine was drunk. After a grace, that is a thanksgiving uh, prayer, the main meal of roast lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs was eaten. And after a further prayer, the third cup of wine was drunk. And then Psalm 114 through 118 was sung and the fourth, kind, fourth cup of wine was drunk. That's the basic structure of a Passover meal. Um, what they were doing through all of these things is remembering God's delivering work that was talked about in, uh, in the earlier reading in Exodus 12. God's people had been enslaved to the Egyptians. They had grown great, and the weight of their slavery was was great and they were suffering greatly and God determined to deliver them so God raised up Moses and sent him and through Moses God warned the people of Egypt and called on the Egyptians to let his people go and they did not do it and so God sent increasingly ferocious judgments upon Egypt until we get to the last one the judgment whereby the firstborn would be killed The firstborn being the most precious thing in a family line in the ancient world. God said, if you will not submit to me, I will take away the thing that is most precious to you. And we might think this is harsh, but we must remember two things. One, Egypt had been an extremely cruel taskmaster. This is not a glorious society to be celebrated This was a cruel society that enslaved millions of people. And secondly, we need to recognize that God had graciously given them opportunities over and over and over again to respond to him. And as a nation, they did not do it. They hardened their heart. Their king hardened his heart against the God of the universe who displayed himself with signs and wonders. And so we get to this last judgment. And if you remember the reading earlier, what what God said was, I'm going to come and on this night I will kill the firstborn of every household. But I'm going to make a provision for my people. Take a lamb, a spotless lamb. Sacrifice that lamb. Take the blood from that sacrifice and put it on the lintel, the the frame of the door. Put it on the top and on the sides. And when my judgment comes through, when it comes to a house where there's blood covering that, I will pass by. A lamb was slain in the place of the firstborn to die. The life of the lamb saved the life of the child. A substitutionary sacrifice was made so that justice would be upheld, but that mercy would be shown and a way for God's people to live. This is what happened in Exodus. And after that, the will of the Egyptians was finally broken. And they let God's people go free from slavery. And God began to take them into the promised land. 
This is the great story of the Passover. This is the great story of Exodus. And for the Jewish people, this was the great symbol of deliverance. This is what God has done to make us a nation for himself. This is what God has done to make us his. This is the basis of who we are. And in that then, Jesus steps into this meal. Jesus steps and he fills it with a newer a new and deeper understanding. He points to its ultimate purpose and fulfillment, the thing that it itself was pointing towards. So Jesus, starting in verse 17, as he's taking this cup, verse 17, look at me with it so we can read these, these verses together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves, for I tell you, from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. This first cup uh, is not recorded in the other Gospels, uh, and it makes us, it suggests to us that Jesus was walking through the pattern of a Passover meal that uh, I read to you earlier. Um, it actually gets technically a little tricky because this probably would have been the day before a Passover would have been normally scheduled. So there's some, con- some conversation about exactly how the timing works. Luke is particularly bad at timing. Uh, he's good at location. So that's what we got. He's in Jerusalem at the, in the upper room. He's not so good on timing. Uh, and that's a question. If you want to come, you can talk to me afterwards and we can pursue it more. But Jesus here seems to be taking most likely the first or the second cup of this Passover meal pattern. If it were the second cup, it would be a cup of thanksgiving, which is what verse 17 says. He gave thanks and he took this and he... Uh, and he said, this is a celebration of you. Take this, um, because what we're doing tonight is going to be the last time we're doing this until the kingdom of God arrives. And there's lots of discussion about exactly how this is understood. But I think the clearest and most easy way to see this is that what Jesus is doing with his disciples is he's saying The time is now for the decisive work of God to begin his kingdom on this earth in a new way, in a final way, is at hand. And we're going to eat this meal now, and then I'm going to go and suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise again, and my kingdom will begin begin on the basis of those things. And one day we will sit at a table together. And it's not clear whether Jesus had a couple weeks from now or a year from now or if he had eternity in mind. But we will sit together in God's kingdom and have fellowship together around a meal. So that's what verse 17 and 18 is all about. Jesus simply pointing ahead to that future hope. And then verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, if you go to church, if you've grown up in church, these are very common words because they're the words of the institution of communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or whatever you called it in the church tradition you grew up in. 
This is my body which is given for you. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. But what does that really mean? This is my body. Well, there's lots of ink spilled on that, isn't there? There have been church traditions and church splits over how do we understand these things. And they're not insignificant conversations. Because some of the ways that the churches have understood this have reflected on how they understand the very nature of Jesus himself. But it seems to me very clear that if Jesus was standing before his disciples saying, this is my body, he's holding up a piece of unleavened bread, he is not suggesting that that piece was somehow miraculously transformed to be a part of the living cells of his body that he was actually doing right there. Whatever it was, that seems to be further than the text would suggest would be a reasonable understanding of it. Having said that then, the church has, figured, has tried to wrestle with what, what then are we doing when we take a piece of bread and when I stand up before you and say, this is the body of Christ which is broken for you, what do I mean by that? So the church has struggled on two different Ends. On one end, we've said this is a simply this is a memorial. We are remembering Jesus' body broken on the cross, and so it's just a it's just a, a symbol and it and a and a thin symbol. And so and I used to think this when I was in in college. I thought, hey, we can have communion with like chips and salsa, you know, and you know we can do it on our own and you know out in the forest with you know on a camping trip and isn't that fun? You know, we can do chips and salsa. We can do it with Twinkies. You know, it doesn't matter. There's an empty memorialism that has been a part of a church tradition that we need to recognize. That is not what's going on here. This is a solemn moment. And Jesus is saying something really important where he says, this is my body. Now there is another way to fall off in understanding that. And that is what I call an undue sacramentalism. This is my body did not imbue that piece of bread with some kind of magical power. It did not make us, it did not make the disciples right with God because they put a, a wafer or a chip, uh, a piece of bread, of unleavened bread in their mouth. What we do know is that Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So it is clearly a memorial in that sense. Do this to remember what I am about to do for you. But it's more than that. Jesus very infrequently gave us very tangible things to do. One is baptism, and one is the Lord's Supper. C.S. Lewis writes about the graciousness of God, that he would condescend to use physical, tangible things to help us realize the greater reality of the spiritual things to which they're pointing. And so when we take a piece of bread and we remember Jesus' body, It has this deep spiritual significance as a means of grace that God has given us so that we might know what God has done for us in Christ. John Calvin says that the means of grace are given as fuel 
of, our, of the faith so that it might grow in our hearts. So we do this regularly to remember Jesus' body broken on the cross. This is not a throwaway ritual that we do at the end of the service just to get through it so that we can get to lunch faster. This is an important part of our worship. And Jesus institutes it with these words in this account saying, this is my body which is broken for you. And then he goes on in verse 20 and he says, this cup poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And for the Jews who had been there, already thinking about the Passover, they would have gone immediately to Exodus 24. They would have remembered that At Mount Sinai, as God met his people there, having delivered them from Egypt and saved them through the Red Sea and provided for them all the things that we preached on a couple weeks ago or a couple years ago. So if you want to go back and listen to our Exodus series, you'll remember all these things. How God provided for his people and delivered them and brought them to Mount Sinai where he revealed himself to them and said, if you will follow my commands, I will be your God and you will be my people I have carried you with eagle's wings. I have delivered you so that you can be my people. And the people said, yes, we will do this. And Moses sacrificed a lamb. And he took the blood. And he, and he cast it over the people to say, this is the sign of the covenant. And a Jewish person sitting in this last supper with Jesus This is the new covenant in my blood. They would have remembered all of that. And then they would have remembered on top of that the promise from the prophet Jeremiah that the days are coming where I will make a new covenant with my people, where I will write the laws on their hearts. I will give them my spirit. I will turn their hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, say Ezekiel, and I will be your God and you will be my people. This is the new covenant. Luke alone says new in here. Matthew and Mark chose not to include that word. Luke wants us to remember to make sure we know what covenant he's talking about. And these hopes and these promises. The other words that are added to this that would never have been a part of a Passover meal is that this is my body broken for you given for you. This cup is poured out for you. Jesus says, I am going to be the Passover lamb for you so that you might be delivered. This is for your deliverance from a greater slavery than the slavery to the Egyptians. This is for your deliverance from a greater judgment than the death of the firstborn. Because I will be the firstborn and the lamb. I will be the one who will stand in your place to free you from sin and from eternal judgment. I am the one who has come to rescue you, not just from slavery in this life, but from eternal condemnation because of your rejection against God. And in doing this, Jesus lays a foundation for a relationship with him and extends 
an invitation for us to come and to partake. Commentator William Barclay says this, what Jesus said was this, by my life and by my death, I've made possible a new relationship between you and God. You are sinners, that is true, but because I died for you, God is no longer your enemy, but your friend. It costs the life of Christ to restore our lost relationship of friendship with God. This is, of course, where the whole gospel of Luke is going towards. It's the death and resurrection of Jesus. And we're, we're now hurtling towards that final, that final day, which we will celebrate in just over a month, Good Friday and Easter Sunday. But here, Jesus gives us a meal as an expression of and as a means to have a relationship with God. That's what Jesus does. And this is the backdrop of what we do when we come to this table. This is why we do it together. We practice it. John Calvin said it was not ordained to be received only one or once a year, nor perfunctorily, as is now the usual custom. I guess in his days, communion had already become pretty rote. Rather, it was ordained to be frequently used among all Christians in order that they might, and then there are four things he says, so that they might, one, frequently return in memory to Christ's death on his cross, on the cross, to the passion. Secondly, that they might, by such remembrance, sustain and strengthen their faith. Thirdly, that they might urge themselves to sing thanksgiving to God and proclaim his goodness. And fourth, by, by participating in the Lord's Supper, that they might nourish a mutual love and among themselves give witness to this love and discern its bond in the unity of Christ's body. So why? It's to remember, looking back. It's to strengthen us today. Strengthen our faith in Christ and in this gospel message today to encourage us and urge us to sing thanksgiving and celebrate the goodness of God and to express a unity by doing it together. And so this is why we practice it the way we do here at Trinity. Not a few times a year, but pretty much every other week. And we do it together as God's people so that we can help one another remember, so that we can see what God has done as he's called people from every tribe and tongue and nation, from every socioeconomic level, from literally, as I look around and see your faces, from all over the world, God has gathered a congregation here to celebrate what Jesus has done. And this is the bond of unity that we do. And it's why we do it together. We do it soberly because we recognize that it was our sin that required the death of the Son of God. But we do it joyfully and with great thanksgiving because he has shown us so great love. Friends, this is the answer to our questions about God. Does he desire communion with us so much so that he would die on the cross for our sins? That he would face the unimaginable suffering of that death to rescue us? Do we know how to get there? 
Yes, by faith in Christ. And then as a part of God's people to celebrate the Lord's Supper, this meal, communion, regularly, so that we remember and never get beyond the gospel or never lose sight of this great news of what God has done for us, that we would feast on it and feed on it so that our faith would be strengthened. Can we have a relationship with God? Yes, he has made a way. And so we will. We will now celebrate the Lord's Supper together. We will come to this table. And as we come to this table, we have this weight of this passage in our minds. It's the best way we can apply it. For those who are serving, let me ask you, come forward. Um, As we come to this table, we recognize... To eat and to drink of these things is not a light thing, but it is a serious thing. And it has meaning. It has meaning as an expression of our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior. And if you're here this morning and you're not sure where you stand, or if you're here this morning and you're seeking to understand Christianity more, we would ask you, let it pass by. Nobody's going to think poorly of you if you do so. Um, Just let it pass by because this isn't yet for you. Uh, This is for those who have placed their faith in Christ. For any of you who have placed your faith in Christ, we invite you, come, eat, feast, and remember and rejoice. What we'll do is we'll pass out the, uh, the unleavened bread, hold on to it, uh, and we'll eat it together, and then we'll Uh, after that, pass out the cup and we will hold on to that and we'll drink it together as well. So let's go and eat this feast of the Lord's Supper. Eli, will you pray for the